Parshas Vayelech begins by the Torah telling us that Vayelech Moshe, that Moshe went. V'yadabras dvaram ha'ila al-kol Yisrael, he said the following things to the entire nation. V'yomar aleim, and he said to them, Ben me'a v'esrim shana anochi hayom, I'm now today 120 years old. L'uchal od l'atzeis v'lavo, I'll no longer be able to come and go. V'ashem amar elai lo ta'avor es hayardein hazeh. And Hashem has told me, I will not cross the Yardain, I will not go with you into Eretz Yisrael. But don't worry, because Hashem himself will be over Lefanecha. He'll go with you, he'll defeat uh, the enemies, etc., etc. And therefore he says, Chizku v'imtsu, be strong, be brave, don't worry about it, Hashem will be with you, etc. This uh, final, final speech on literally the last day of Moshe's life is introduced by, as the Parsha gets its name, the Torah telling us that Moshe went, by Yelech Moshe. However, as all of the Mepharshim note, the Torah never tells us where Moshe went. It's a total non sequitur. By Yelech Moshe he went, and then the rest of the continuation of that and the success of Pesukim are about what Moshe said. It never tells us where he went. So a big group of the classical Mepharshim all understand that what is being alluded to here is that on this last day of his life, at this last speech, Moshe is going from Shevet to Shevet, from tent to tent, to have a final goodbye with the people. However, even those Mepharshim that agree on that basic narrative disagree on various nuances about what exactly Moshe was trying to accomplish or why he was exactly motivated. Ramban, for example, says that after having concluded the teaching and this covenant at Arvos Moav, all of the people naturally return to their private and respective tents, and therefore Moshe, realizing this is the last day of his life, went from tent to tent as a form of derech eretz. When a guest takes leave of his hosts, so to speak, he says goodbye to them, he thanks them, he shows them his appreciation and his derech eretz, and therefore as a simple but important and instructive matter for all of us to learn from, Moshe, in an act of derech eretz, takes leave from the people. That's the Vayelech Moshe. The Seforno says something which is perhaps even more poignant. He demonstrates that Vayelech can also mean to strengthen yourself. And therefore he says what's being alluded to here is that Moshe strengthened himself personally because he went on this trip, so to speak, this mini journey from tent to tent, from tribe to tribe, to strengthen and console the people over his impending death. He was mechazik them to be happy, to realize that this was Hashem's will, and even if they'd have natural disappointment and sadness at his not going with them and him passing on, but nevertheless, having just made this permanent bris, this covenant with Hashem at Arvos Moav, that itself, that itself should supersede any personal feelings of loss that they have over Moshe's death. And this is really, obviously, quite remarkable testament to Moshe's fortitude, his strength of character, his emotional uh, strength, and his commitment to the nation, not being subsumed with or overwhelmed with or totally uh, narcissistic, focusing on just himself, but rather, Dafke, at a moment of you know, the greatest sorrow, he knows this is the last day of his life, <clears throat> instead of thinking about himself, he's using the opportunity to comfort and console others. And this is uh, really inspiring, and something that sometimes we hear about in, uh, in various families, when you often hear about people who themselves are the ones who have suffered a great loss, and you visit them, or you pay a shiva call, and 
People often have that experience where you went to comfort someone and the person you went to comfort ends up comforting you. And it really is a tremendous act of hero- spiritual and emotional heroism of true gvura. And according to the Sforno, the model for that is Moshe. That's what he was doing. Despite his having every understandable reason for being focused on himself and his own loss, Hidafka strengthened himself. And he needed to strengthen himself because this was a hard thing, even for Moshe. But he did it. He strengthened himself and he consoled the other people. The Kliyakar has a third variation of this. And he says that Moshe was going out of his way not just to speak in one place and have that message travel, but rather Dafka go from tent to tent from family to family, from tribe to tribe, because he was trying to show that his imminent death was not at all from natural causes. He was making sure that everyone certainly understood that from a physical perspective, he was healthy, he was fit, he could walk everywhere, go anywhere, and he was just wanting to let them know that you know tomorrow, so to speak, or tonight, whatever it is, later today when I die, you should know that was only coming from divine decree, as the Psukim themselves describe. It's only because Hashem had decreed, I can't go in with you, but you should know it's not from natural causes, it's only from divine causes. So he wasn't, so to speak, uh, trying to fight reality, but he did want to demonstrate to everyone that the reality was a spiritual one, and not a natural ebbing of his strength, not a natural demise, but a purely divinely inspired one, in which otherwise he was, so to speak, good to go. And that was important for Moshe to show the people, so they should realize that it wasn't just a coincidence or natural causes that prevented him from going with them but rather Hashem's decree. Last but not least, the Or HaChayim HaKadosh has a completely different and fascinating interpretation. He says that the Yelech Moshe does not refer to Moshe in the physical sense, rather in the spiritual one. And he bases himself on a teaching of the Zohar that says that the Neshama of a Tzaddik can discern when it's going to die, and that the Neshama takes temporary leave of the body, even before actual death, but takes leave of the body so that the Neshama can go and visit and see where eventually it will be going, where its ultimately eternal resting will be. And in this case, Vayelech Moshe refers to Moshe's neshama, it left him. And Moshe, having sensed that, that was his cue. That's how he realized that the end was near, and as a result, he began to share his final words with the nation. So unlike all the other Mepharshim who see Moshe in a physical way, going from family to family, from tent to tent, according to Rachaim, he stayed in his usual place to give a a national-focused, uh, big public speech, not a one-by-one speech, not a tent-by-tent little speeches, but nevertheless, it also was because of his spiritual sensing that the time of his death was imminent. So we have four different interpretations, the first three agreeing on the basic premise that Moshe was going from tent to tent, and Orchaim having a completely different interpretation inspired by this very interesting mystical teaching of the Zohar. In a short but powerful comment in this week's Parsha, the Meshachachma combines both keen reading of the Psukim, a sharp sensitivity to the Pshat, with a powerful and inspiring and very important Hashkafic idea, a combination which is characteristic of his brilliant Perish al Torah. The Pasuk in our Parsha, the well known Pasuk in Parsha's Nitzavim, Perklamid, Pasuk Tezvav, talks about the choice, the great choice, that stands before all of us. We are told, Behold, I set before you today, you have a choice, two roads lie before you in life. You can choose the good and get life, or you can choose the evil and get death. This is the, the great moral responsibility we all have, freedom of choice. 
two roads, but each road has different consequences, leads to a different destination. The Meshachachma, in a sensitive reading of this Pesach, notices that in fact, this Pesach sounds eerily similar to a Pesach we had earlier in Sefer Dvarim, in Parshas Re'eh, in Perk Yud Aleph. And there the Pesach also starts off with, Re'eh nasati lefnechem hayom. Almost identical introduction. And if the two Pesachim start off the same, the fact that they vary one from the other in the continuation is that much more important. Because, says the Meshachachma, in that earlier Pesach in Re'eh, what are the two choices that lie before us? What are the two roads, the divergent paths? Bracha uklala. Blessing and curse. Yet somehow, in our Parsha, the stakes have been raised. Now, bracha and klala are nothing to sneeze at. Who doesn't want blessing? And God forbid, who would want a curse? However, says the Meshachachma, somehow when we get to Parsha's Nitzavim, Perak Lamid, the stakes are much higher. Now it's not just blessing and curse, it's Chaim and Mavis. It's actually life and death. Asks the Meshachachma, what has changed? Why is it so much worse? Why are the stakes so much higher in our Parsha, in Nitzavim, in Perak Lamid, than they were in Parsha's Re'eh, in Perak Yeralev? To answer this question, says the Meshachachma, one thing changed. But with that, everything changed. And that is the Pasuk that we read just a few Pesukim earlier in our Parsha, in Pasuk Yud Aleph. Ki ha-mitzvah hazos, this mitzvah, which I'm commanding you today, is not concealed, and it's not far away. It's not in the heavens, it's not on the other side of the ocean, Rather, it's very close to you. You can do it. What is this mitzvah that the Torah is waxing poetic about? Says the Meshachachma, based on the comments of the Sefer HaIkarim, of Yosef Albo, it's also in the Ramban in our parsha. they assume that the mitzvah being referred to here is none other than tshuva. Tshuva is introduced to the world, introduced in these psukim, just a few psukim earlier, here in Parshas Nitzavim. Says the Meshachachma, the difference between the representation, the presentation in Parshat Re'eh and in our Parsha is what happened in between them. What happened in between them is the tshuva it was introduced to the world and introduced to the moral calculus. Says the Meshachachma, in Parshas Re'eh, there was no tshuva yet. It hadn't been introduced to the world. And therefore, while you had free choice and the free choice had consequences, but the stakes were only so high, bracha and klala. However, now that tshuva has already been introduced into the world, when our parsha speaks about the two choices and the two divergent paths that lie before you, it's not just talking about the possibility that you could choose to sin. It's talking about the possibility that you could choose to sin and not take advantage of doing tshuva. You sinned and you never even repented for that sin. Ah, says the Meshachachma, that's much worse. If not only did you sin but you didn't do tshuva for that sin, you didn't repent for that sin, that is much worse than just, not, than just sinning in the first place. How so? Why does it make the sin worse? So for this, the Meshachachma explains, based on a famous comment of the Vilna Gon. The Vilna Gon comments on the Mishnah in Perkeavos, which tells us, in a very related message, that we should never forget that ultimately every one of us has to give a, give a din v'cheshbon before God which sounds like we're being told to remember that you know God notices everything, remembers everything, and ultimately we'll have to give an accounting and accept a judgment for our good and, unfortunately, bad deeds. However, the Grah is sensitive to the language there in the Mishnah. What is the difference, asks the Grah, 
between Din and Cheshbon. The message basically seems to be the same, the one we already explained and conveyed. So why the double language of Din and Cheshbon? And the Gros says, in a well-known and, frankly, scary interpretation, that in fact, any time you sin, you are potentially going to be punished for two things. Not only the actual sin, which is what the Gros says is Din, you'll have a judgment on your actual sin, but you will also be responsible for, and you also may be punished for, the Cheshbon. What's the Cheshbon? That's the mitzvah or mitzvos you could have been doing when in fact you sinned. The squandered and wasted opportunity, the mitzvos you could have been doing, but instead you chose to sin, you're responsible for that wasted and squandered opportunity as well. So you get clopped twice, a double potch for the sin and for the lost opportunity of the mitzvos never done. That's din and cheshbon. So working off of that, based on the Vilnagon, Says the Meshachachma, it's not directly the same thing as the Vilna Gon, it's not identical, but in the spirit of the Vilna Gon, says the Meshachachma, it's the same thing when it comes to not doing tshuva. It's one thing to do a sin, that's a punishment, and God forbid that could be a klala. And certainly if we do a mitzvah, that's a bracha, but it could be a klala. However, says the Gra, excuse me, says the Meshachachma, based on the Gra, if not only did we sin, but we didn't do tshuva for that sin, so then it's much worse, because not only are we being punished for the sin, the din, we're also being punished for not taking advantage of the opportunity called tshuva. And to not do tshuva is even worse than the sin. We can think about it in our own life. If someone has hurt us, and then we give them an opportunity to apologize, and they still don't take that, they still don't apologize, that's even worse, that's even more hurtful than the initial pain that they caused. So too says the Meshachachma, that's pshat here. That's why it's not just bracha and klala, but it's much worse. It's Chaim and Mavis. Because now you not only sinned, but you didn't take the opportunity to say you're sorry, to make it right with Hashem. You didn't do tshuva. The Meshachachim ends by saying, Zem Musr Nora. This is a valuable lesson. Indeed. A very famous section of Psukim coming towards the end of Parshas Nitzavim, we read about Ki HaMitzvah Hazos. This mitzvah, which I am commanding you today, lo it's not distant or wondrous uh, from you, lo rechoka, lo it's not in the heavens, as if to say, miyale lanu lanu, such that you'd have to say, who will go to the heavens and take it for us, etc. Lo liyam, it's not over the sea, in which you'd have to say someone has to go over the sea to get it, but rather, so it's close and near to you in your heart and in your, your mouth. One of the key phrases in these famous psukim is it's not in heaven. And of course, the ambiguity here is what is the it? What's not in heaven? And of course, this relates to the ambiguity of the whole section. This mitzvah, which we're waxing poetic about. What is the it? What are we talking about? And what is the loba shamayimhi? So there are various interpretations in different sources in Chazal and certainly in later commentaries. But I want to share with you one of the interpretations, which is an incredible and famous and incredibly powerful and impactful one. And that is from the Gemara in Maseches Bab Metziah and Afnun Tesamid Beis. The Gemara is going to get to something incredibly powerful, as I mentioned. Starts off, though, in a rather technical uh, discussion, and that is a machlokas about the status of a certain kind of oven known as the Tanur Shel Achnai, which, unlike previous ovens made in the time of Chazal, this oven, which was based on uh, certain stones that were then wrapped around in a circle, kind of like a coil of a snake, and they were individual sections of hard-cooked stone, 
baked stone, which were cemented to each other with some kind of a sand. And the way they were made leads to a machlokes, whether if they come in contact with something that's tomei, or the, is this type of oven susceptible to tumah? A regular oven in the time of Chazal was, but this different kind of oven, for reasons which we won't get into now, might not be. And this is the debate. The Chachamim, the majority of you say, this oven, for whatever is idiosyncratic and unique about it, it can still become Tamei. But, nevertheless, uh, there was a dissenting opinion, Rebbe Yezer, uh, very passionately, as we shall see, he disagreed and he felt that this type of oven, for various reasons, cannot become Tamei no matter what. So the Gemara goes on to say that, in fact, Rebbe Yezer would not give in. Despite the fact that he was outvoted, and we usually go with the majority, Achirab and Lahatos, he would not give in. And in fact, on that day, Heshev Rebeliezer called Tshuva Shabolam. He advanced any argument you could imagine to defend his lenient view, but he couldn't move the crowd. The majority view still was against him. But he still didn't accept their majority stronger position. And therefore he called out, if the halacha is like me, let this charuv, let this carob tree prove it. And sure enough, immediately, ne'ekar charuv, all of a sudden the carob tree was uprooted from its place. hundred amos, clearly a divine, miraculous indication that he's correct. Look, he called for the proof from heaven and he got it. Nevertheless, the Chachamim respond, we don't have miraculous proofs, we're not going to decide a halacha based on a carob tree. He didn't give up. He said, okay, if I'm right, let this water canal, this Amas Hamayim prove it. And sure enough, right when he said that, Chazru Amas Hamayim Lacharem, all of a sudden the water started flowing backwards. An unbelievable miracle, clearly confirming that his position is correct. And once again, the sages did not bow they did not accept the miraculous proof. Then he said, okay, a third time. If I'm right, let the walls of the base of Migdash indicate for me. And at that moment, all of the walls in the base of Migdash started leaning in. And that was obviously scary. All the rabbis were in the base of Migdash, and all of a sudden the walls started caving in on them. And nevertheless, they are still not moved. The halacha is not like that. And last but not least, finally, Abelazar says, okay, if none of these proofs worked, let the heaven themselves say that I'm right. And sure enough, right away, says the Gemara, a heavenly voice, a baskal, came out and clearly proclaimed, Malachem Eitzel Rebbe Yezer. what are you arguing with Rebbe Yezer for? The halacha is like him in all places. So says Rebbe Yezer, he got up on his feet, he got up on the chair and he said, don't you see this? Don't you see that I'm correct? To which, excuse me, it's Rabbi Yoshua, I'm sorry, representing the sages, got up and said, I don't care if the carob tree, the water, the walls, and now even the divine voice itself. None of it matters because, quoting our Pasuk, Lo ba he, it is not in heaven. And clearly from the Gemara's perspective, what is the it? Halachic authority. Chazal understands this is also in the Gemara in Erevin, this whole section is referring to the entire Torah, that the Karv Halacha Hadavar, the Mitzvah Hazos, is Torah. <clears throat> and this particular section means when it comes to authority to interpret Torah, to Paskin Halacha of the Torah, we have rules, and they're human rules. Certain ways to prove things, and we go by the majority of the rabbis. We don't take miraculous or divine intervention. Lo Bashemaimi, authority is no longer vested in heaven, but in the rabbinic establishment. And the Gemara says, once Hashem gave over the Torah to human beings, it's now based on human interpretation, assuming people are faithfully 
following the rules that the Torah itself gave us. And therefore, we don't follow Baskol's heavenly voices. It doesn't matter. The Torah says, Acherav Lahatos, go after the majority. And the majority here voted against Rebeliezer and voted that this oven could become Tameh. There's an incredible, this itself is an incredible Gemara. And in, in different contexts, we could elaborate on it. But really, a dramatic, dramatic Agada describing and elaborating on our Pasuk, Loba Shamaimi, the rabbinic authority has been given from human beings, uh, to human beings from Hashem. The Gemara adds an incredibly fascinating postscript to this already incredible Gemara, and that is that Rabbi Nassan once saw El Navi, and he said to him, tell me something, when this debate was happening with Rabbi Yezer and the sages, and all these miracles were happening, and the sages always were rejecting it, what was Hashem doing at that time? So the Gemara says, he was laughing. God was smiling. He was laughing. And he said, My children have defeated me. In other words, I myself, God himself, is passing And the rabbis are using God's own words, the Torah's own rules of Loba Shamaimi and Acharab Lahatos to, so to speak, outvote and defeat Hashem. And Hashem took a certain pleasure in that, the way a parent might get nachas from a child who's using the things that the parent himself taught. And even outsmarting the, child, the parent, so to Hashem says, the authority is no longer in me, nitzchuni banai, lo he. Rav Tzadok Kakoen of Lublin was one of the most brilliant and creative of the Hasidic masters. And in a comment at the outset of Parshas Vayelech, he once again displays his brilliance in an area in which I think he has made uniquely significant contribution, and that is the question of what I call spiritual resilience, having a perspective and an insight and an understanding of how to deal with the type of failure that we all experience, failure which is in many ways endemic to the human condition. The Pasuk tells us right at the beginning of Parshas V'yelech, the Moshe tells the nation, that I am now 120 years old, and I can no longer go out and come in, and Hashem has told me, and obviously on the one hand, the message of the Pasuk is that Moshe is conveying to the people that his time is very fast coming to an end, and he is making those appropriate preparations. On the other hand, the phrase, lo uchal od lotzeis v'lavo, is a somewhat awkward phrase, and it's not entirely clear what does that mean. I can no longer go out and come in. Just kind of a strange and awkward phrase. So, in his commentary pre-Tzadik, here on our Parsha, Rav Tzadok says the following. He starts off by referencing a point which we find in many Ba'alei Machshava, not only other Hasidic uh, Sfarim, but other Balei and Sifrei Machshava, and that is that there's a fundamental difference between human beings and angels and Malachim. That in certain sources, Malachim, angels, are referred to as Omdim. We know there's a tradition of the angel only having one leg, and the idea is that an angel stands, as opposed to a human being, a human being is a Holech. Kol yimei ha'adam ba'olam hazen nikra Holech, says Rav Tzaruk. There's a fundamental difference between human beings and angels. We can move, we walk, we can progress, we can grow in a more figurative sense, as opposed to the Malach, who is an Omeid. The Malach in many ways may be perfect, but the Malach is who it is, is who he is, 
from the moment that the Malach was created and will always be the same, static, omade, standing in place. It may be a great place, but there's no room for growth. I suppose a human being is called a holech, a human being walks. Of course, when you walk, however, you can also fall. Says Rav Tzadok that unlike an angel, a human being, the whole intent of the human being is the whole purpose of life is to hopefully be walking and ultimately going from level to level, improving and growing until you can try to perfect yourself until you can get to the end of your life. Now, of course, almost no human being ever has fully perfected themselves. But that is the goal of life, to do our best, to always be walking, to always be advancing, to always be growing. In light of this background, says Rav Tzadok, this is what Moshe Rabbeinu was telling the people. By Yelech Moshe, Moshe is ex- being described as the ultimate, the quintessential holech. Moshe Rabbeinu was holech tamid b'malami madrega la madrega. And in fact, Moshe Rabbeinu may have been the only person in history who truly got to the top of the mountain. He in fact was able to perfect himself and reach the highest level, the highest madrega that a human being can ever reach. And therefore, says Rav Tzadok, this is what Moshe Rabbeinu was conveying to the people. I can no longer go out or come in. Go out, as Rav Tzadok understands it, is a metaphor for falling, for sinning. I can no longer be distant from who I'm supposed to be, distant from Hashem. Or lavo, come close, to grow, to do the right thing. In other words, says Rav Tzadok, Hainu, the kol shelo yuchal od latzeis linpol mimadregaso, that Moshe had reached the point of such perfection that it actually was, as for perhaps the only time in human history, impossible for him to fall, for him latzeis, to go out, to be distant from Hashem, to fall from his madrega. He had in fact truly perfected himself. However, says Rav Tzadok, and here's where the unbelievable insight comes in, However, says Rav Tzadok, that's the second and final part of the Pasuk. It's not just but also v'lavo. Because, says Rav Tzadok, once a person has reached the point where they can no longer fall, it also means that they can no longer grow. And Rav Tzadok is saying something quite profound. And that is, that of course no one wants to fail, no one wants to fall, we're all frustrated by those parts of our life that we find difficult and that we stumble repeatedly. Nevertheless, Rav Tzadok is pointing out something obvious but truly profound and important to the human condition and certainly to religious life. And that is that no growth is possible unless failure is also possible. If failure would be impossible, then we would be just like an angel or a computer or a robot. It would simply be impossible to grow. Growth is defined as making the right decision when I could have made the wrong one. But if there's no possibility of failure, if there's no possibility that I could have made a mistake, then there also would be no possibility of growth. For almost all of us, no matter where we are in our religious spectrum and on whatever level we're on, there is always the possibility of lutzes, there's always the possibility of making mistakes and failing, and as frustrating as that can be, but that in and of itself is what creates the possibility of lovo, of growth. Almost everything that we cherish in life, in our personal lives, in our religious lives, they're only possible, and we only have reason to truly be proud of our accomplishments, because we could have failed. 
But Baruch Hashem, because we've made good decisions, we have what to be proud of. But if we were given the choice, you could never fail, but you'd also never have any of those accomplishments that have given you the greatest satisfaction in life. Would you take that choice? I don't think so. It's the possibility of failing which makes the possibility of succeeding, in fact, a reality and what gives life meaning. Says Rav Tzadok, that's what Moshe Rabbeinu was saying. I've reached the end. I've perfected myself so much that there's no more room to fail. And if there's no more room to fail, there's no more room to grow. And naturally, therefore, my life has come to an end. At the beginning of Parak Lamed, we read about the phenomenon of tshuva. Veshavta ar Hashem you will return, you will do tshuva, you will repent, you will get close to Hashem. Veshamata bekolo, you will listen to His voice. Everything that I am commanding you, ato uvanecha, you and your children, with all of your heart and with all of your soul. So this is clearly a reference to tshuva, a return, a spiritual renewal. And then later in the same parak, about ten psukim later in pasuk Yiralef, we read. There is a certain mitzvah which I'm commanding you today. It's a commandment. It's a mitzvah. It's no far from you. It's not distant. It's not in the heavens, etc., etc. It's not clear, however, what exactly is this specific mitzvah that is being referred to here a little bit later on in Paraklamid. So the Ramban very famously explains that this mitzvah in Paraklamid is to be understood in the context that we began the chapter with, which was a reference to tshuva. That is to say, says the Ramban, this is the source for the mitzvah of tshuva. If you have done a sin, it's not enough, even though it is obvious, but it's not enough to just stop sinning. Rather, there is a specific requirement, a specific mitzvah, to repent in a certain way, but specifically to repent, mitzvah, to do tshuva. And this is the basis of that mitzvah. The Sephorno, in his commentary on our parsha, agrees and other Rishonim as well, such as Rabbeinu Yonah, also cite these Pesukim as a source for the mitzvah, the obligation to do tshuva. There's a tremendous discussion, however, about the Rambam's position. Does the Rambam agree, disagree? To what extent might he disagree? And the reason that the Rambam is so difficult is because, first of all, in his Sefer HaMitzvos, the Rambam never counts tshuva as a mitzvah, but rather counts a vidui, verbal confession as one of the 613 mitzvahs. And in that context, just mentions tshuva almost as an afterthought. Moreover, the Rambam never quotes the psukim from our Parsha. Secondly, many commentaries note that in the Rambam's section in his Mishnah Torah of Hilchos tshuva, in Perak Aleph, Halacha Aleph, right at the outset, the Rambam actually starts off by saying, Ki sheyasa tshuva. When you do tshuva, chayav lhisvados, then you must Say vidu, you must do the verbal confession. And here also, this seems to confirm that initial impression that we had, that the only real mitzvah, the only obligation is confession, is vidui. It's just that, that you only do vidui when you're in the context of doing tshuva. But it doesn't seem to be that there's a mitzvah or an obligation to do tshuva. Just if you do tshuva, then you must verbally confess, you must do vidui in order to avoid being punished. But it doesn't sound like there's actually any mitzvah or obligation to do tshuva. Is that really correct? Is that the impression that we should take from this Rambam? So the answer is, it's a major, major and fascinating debate. A whole group of later commentaries, a bunch of achronim, feel exactly that. 
perhaps most notably the Minchas Chinuch, but this is also echoed in the Sefer Avodas HaMelech, which is a commentary to the Rambam. They all felt that, in the Rambam's understanding, there is no need for the mitzvah of tshuva. The Meshachachma as well says this in Parshas Vayelech, in Paraklamet Aleph, that there's no need for a mitzvah of tshuva. After all, once you've sinned, unfortunately, then of course you have to stop sinning. It's inconceivable that a person could remain and exist in a state of sin. Obviously, you have to rectify that situation to the best of you can, the best that you can. It must be that way. Again, says the Meshachachma. We don't reward the sinner by giving him a new mitzvah. Rather, the mitzvah is stop doing whatever sin you were doing. So, all of these commentaries feel very strongly, both logically and within the writing of the Rambam. In fact, there is no mitzvah, there's no separate obligation to do tshuva. Rav Kook, in one of his tshuvos in Mishpat Kohen, perhaps says this beautifully when he says, tshuva is not a mitzvah, but an etzah shel chiba. It is advisable and it is advised by Hashem out of his love. He gave us this as an option because he loves us, but if we want to take it or not, is totally up to us. Alternatively, there are those who disagree and notably, this disagreement comes from the world of Brisk. Rav Salvechik and his father uh, and grandfather, great-grandfather, seem to all agree that, in fact, the Rambam holds that tshuva is a mitzvah. After all, they point out, even the written record in the Rambam is not so simple. It's true that we mentioned some sources that focus on vidui, but they point to a number of other sources in the wording of the Rambam where the focus and emphasis is actually on tshuva itself. Time permits just mentioning one of those, but the Rambam, in his introduction to Hilchos Tshuva, in the section known as the Koteret, or the Ramazim, there the Rambam says, in this following ten chapters, I'm going to list, and I'm going to elaborate on a number of mitzvos, and he says, what is the mitzvah I'm going to be elaborating on? Sheyoshuv v'yaasevidoi, that there's a mitzvah to do tshuva, and verbally confess. And it's clear that in this formulation, unlike the ones we saw previously, the emphasis and the focus is on doing tshuva per se, not just on the verbal confession. Moreover, in a tshuva drasha published in the work Al HaTshuva, Rav Salvechik quoted his great-grandfather and namesake, the Beis Alevi, as saying that, at least from his perspective, logically it's just inconceivable. There must be a mitzvah to do tshuva. What some of those other achronim, including the Meshachachma, thought was the, obvi- the opposite Rav Beis Alevi says, no, it must be that there is a mitzvah. So how do you understand the relationship between tshuva and vidui? So Salvechik and his father and family explained there's a difference between the maisa mitzvah and the kiyam ha-mitzvah. There's the physical act that we must do, and in this case it's the verbal confession, but that's not the essence of the mitzvah. That's not how one fulfills, and that's not the ultimate goal of the Torah. The ultimate goal of the Torah, the real mitzvah, is the healed and improved and repentant heart. And that's the kiyam ha-mitzvah, that's tshuva. But verbally, we express that, and what we, the concrete action that is attached to it is the maisa. And therefore, in certain texts, Rama emphasizes what you must do, and the physical action, in this case, the verbalization, is the vidui. But in that other source which we mentioned, he's talking about the essence of the mitzvah. What's the real mitzvah? The real mitzvah is not just the verbal confession, but the more fundamental tshuva, and the corrected and warmed and spiritually improved heart that is supposed to motivate and come with that verbal confession.